Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. Last week, Pastor Matt did such a phenomenal job opening the series, and I've been chewing on his sermon all week. Even uh, as this morning, I sent him a text uh, earlier this week, and I was like, man, I wish you'd have, I wish you'd have brought the pennies, man. I wish you would have brought the pennies. He used this really beautiful illustration of comparing the wealth of Jeff Bezos to the wealth of God. And he, would, he was like, Jeff Bezos' wealth is like if I had two pennies and I threw them on the stage. And I kept thinking all week, I wish you had the pennies. Um, I've been thinking about that. I've been thinking about uh, how not to be a prairie chicken all week um, and, and how not to be an eagle who fancies themselves a prairie chicken. Um, if y'all haven't had a chance to go back and listen to that sermon, please do yourself a favor and go listen. Um, he teed us up perfectly for where we're going to go this morning, which is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. When you get there, say, oh, yeah. If you need a minute, say, hold up, brother. Fantastic. Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, let's begin in verse 3. We'll read verses 3 through verse 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, that's important, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless, here's another uh, prepositional phrase that's important, before him, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, uh, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, there's a lot there. I'm going to read that again. There's a lot there. We're going to unpack that this morning. There's a whole lot of Christianese, a whole lot of jargon, a whole lot of big words, a whole lot of um, uh, controversial concepts, if you will. We're going to take our time this morning. Let me read that again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies or the heavenly places. Um, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we might be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us uh, for adoption to himself through Jesus Christ, adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And before considering it, let's pray. Would you pray with me? Father, it is now in these moments when we need your word to shine, uh, for your word by your spirit to move from being maybe jumbled up words on a page to becoming a clear clarion call to our souls, compelling us to worship and follow you with everything that's in us. Lord, I have never been more aware of the folly of preaching than I am right now that a sinful, broken man might speak on behalf of you, saying, thus declares the Lord, and who am I, Lord God, and but a vessel? So would you, by your spirit, come this morning? And Spirit of God, you are the hand that penned the words on these pages. Would you be our guide and our interpreter this morning? Would you make these words plain and very clear to us? In the name of Christ, we pray and ask. Amen. Amen. This week, I was listening to an old Isley Brothers song called Drifting on a Memory. And I began to think about memories and how memories themselves are a bit of a mystery. Just this week, I was having a conversation with my wife and I could remember exactly what I was wearing on October the 15th, 2005. But I cannot remember what cravings my wife had me out running errands for in each of her pregnancies. 
I, I can remember exactly where I was at 12, 13 years old when I heard the call of God to be a pastor, his call on my life in this city, in College Park, Georgia. I remember exactly where I was. I remember what I was wearing. I remember what the choir was singing. And yet, because of concussions, I've lost about 10 years of memory. There's a gap in my memory. I can remember that, but I, but I can't remember some of the best games I've ever played in my life in high school. They're completely and totally gone. There is a mystery in how the synapses connect in our brains that not only elicit these moments in time, but all of the emotions around those moments, sights, smells, sounds that would create a memory. There's a mystery there. There's a mystery in the very idea, the concept, and the reality of light. It should be physically impossible for light to both exist as a particle and as a wave. How can you have a particle of light and a wave of light? These two things seem to be in diametrically opposed to one another. There is an apparent paradox in the fact that this cannot and should not behave physically in this way. Two ideas that seem irreconcilably apart from one another. Mystery. And as a child growing up, I gobbled up every Agatha Christie novel, every Hardy Boys book, and every Nancy Drew joint that I could get my hands on. Every Scooby-Doo episode and every mystery that I could find that had something to do with some dark cave by the sea that involved some very seedy and shady characters and some teenagers or a bunch of strangers on a train trying to solve a mystery. As a child, and I think there's part of us as humans that are drawn into mystery, being carried along by the suspicion that perhaps we can figure it out. And yet this morning, we arrive at a place where there's mystery. And the call is to not try to reconcile it. The call is to not try to put a bow in it. The call is to sit in the messiness of mystery. Now, this is difficult because humans innately crave clarity. We, we like the shows that draw us along and drag us along. We like the movies where there's delayed resolution, but at the very end, a bow gets tied into the very end and the, the, the entire plot is resolved. We feel really good about ourselves. Every single TV show, including This Is Us, every episode is the exact same. Do y'all know that if you watch that show, you've been watching the same episode for four years? The, the show is, hey, here's some drama. Let's flash back to see the origins of that drama. Let's flash forward to see the ways in which this drama is playing out in real time. Let's flash back and let's all cry at the resolution and the real heart behind the drama. And then let's fast forward to see how all that gets resolved. And when we feel really good as we're weeping about ourselves, the show is going off. I've never seen an episode of This Is Us. <laughs> Ever. Never in my life have I seen a full episode. But... Humans love resolution to mystery. It's part of why movies sell. It's part of why TV shows are so popular, but it's also why Christians fight so much over the Bible. Because there is so much mystery. 
And rather than living in the tension of what is presented to us in God's word, we will make mountains out of molehills rather than sitting underneath the wave of God's word doing its work. So this morning, the call for us is to approach this conversation on election. And spoiler alert, we're not going to solve it this morning. Christians have been debating this very issue for thousands of years. We're not going to solve it here. But what I do want us to do is I want us to walk through this text in mind, thinking from the perception that we are Jews and Gentiles in the church in Ephesus in modern day Turkey, receiving this letter from the Apostle Paul, who's in jail, writing to us because he loves us and in his imprisoned state wants to remind us of who we are as the church. Now, there is a conversation to be had about the role of systematic theology in the life of the church. Systematic theology is when you take one theological topic, you collate all the scripture about that topic, and you put it in a list, and then there you can read how the Bible speaks about these particular issues. I'm I'm less of a systematic theologian. I'm more of a biblical theologian because Paul is not writing in a vacuum. He's writing to the new Israel with the old Israel in mind. We're going to tease this out here in just a minute. Last final introductory comment. I think properly understood this concept of election should lead us not to divisiveness, but it should lead us to humility and it should lead us to praise. Because when you begin to dig into this, you realize that you don't really know as much as you think you know. And so with that in mind, let's hop into verse four with this first point. It's two beautiful verses here. The first point this morning that we see is that in Christ, we are eternally chosen by grace to be holy. God has sovereignly chosen us by his great kindness to be holy. What does it mean to be holy? To be holy means to be set apart for God's indiscriminate use. Your life does not belong to you. Your children are not yours. Your money, though you may think it's yours, is not yours. Everything and who you are as, Christ, as a Christian should be submitted to God that he might use for his indiscriminate use. When we think about this idea of sovereign election, we, we should go back to the Old Testament where God divinely chose a group of people for reasons that don't make much sense in order that they might represent him on the earth as his people and testify to his greatness. Who are these people? It is Israel. How do I know this? Because it's in Deuteronomy chapter seven, verses six through eight. Would you look at it with me? Moses writes here, he says, speaking from and for God, he says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the people who are on the face of the earth, let's stop. So so right here, God is saying to Israel, I chose you. Out of everybody on the earth, I chose you. It's kind of like getting married. And that one line that they should say when you get married, uh, in choosing you, uh, I forsake all others. They don't always say that. But but when when you say that, it is an exclusive claim to relationship. This is what God is saying. He said, I'm making a special exclusive relationship with you, Israel, beyond everyone else. And let's keep reading. Verse seven, he says, it was not because you were more in number than other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. Uh, let, me, let me put it this way. Um, you were 
ugly in high school, you stayed ugly in high school, you were poor, you didn't have a whole lot of money, there's no reason that I should have chosen you. You had no external or internal reasons that would have made me choose you. God is trying to tell Israel, there's nothing special about you other than my selection of you. Let's keep reading. Verse eight, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and has redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh the king. God is saying, you were the ugly duckling, you were the runt, you were the fewest, and I am taking you, I am remaking you, I'm transforming you to be my bride. It is the choice of God to do with whom whatever he pleases in an indiscriminate fashion. Fast forward to Ephesians chapter four, we find that we are chosen by God in Christ. Why? So that we might be holy and blameless before him. There's a word in the Latin, a phrase in Latin, that word is coram deo. It means before the face of God. God has chosen these Ephesian believers to be holy, to be set apart, to be examples for the world, to be those that God would choose to use in an indiscriminate fashion. Why? Because they're living before the face of God. This is really important when you're living in a world of political, not only just partisanship, because I don't think there was partisanship then, but there was political division. You had religious plurality. You had cultural chaos and you had persecution. Now in the same house, you've got Jew, you've got Gentile calling each other brother and sister. Paul's reminding them that they've been chosen to be holy. How in the world do you expect for me to get along with the person I hate? Paul says that you've been chosen, not because of who you are, where you're from, but you've been chosen in Christ to be holy before God, living before the face of God. Now, have you guys ever thought about if someone were to pop up at your house with a videotape of the last 24 hours of your house? I have, and it terrifies me. Because if people ever saw how I spent my time, there are many people that'd be like, oh my gosh, what is he doing up there? And I'm saying, I'm broken just like the rest of y'all, right? But when we think about the fact that there is always someone watching, there's either little eyes watching. There's either, either a spouse watching. Um, I cannot help but to think that my phone is watching. How can I be thinking about little Debbie Swiss cake rolls? I can be thinking about it. And then next thing you know, I get a targeted ad on Facebook. I ain't clicked nothing about a little Debbie Swiss roll. How in the world am I getting targeted ads about little Debbie Swiss rolls? Who is in my head? <laughs> There's always someone watching. And when we think about God himself, who never sleeps nor slumbers, he watches and sees all. That every single thing about us is seen and known. Then it would make us, in the ways that we live, coram deo, before the face of God, it would make it all the more urgent. Holiness. Hebrews 12, 14 tells us the importance of holiness. When the author of Hebrews says, strive for peace with everyone. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Holiness, a set apart particularity that comes not from our own actions, but being set apart in 
Christ. It is holiness for apart from which we shall see, not see the Lord. I like the way that being holy translates to everyday life because as a Christian, I can tell you to be holy, but you know what? You know what you smell like. You know what you look like. Being holy does not mean being perfect. There's only been one perfect person. That's why Paul uses the phrase, in him are we to be holy and blameless. Because outside of him, you've got no shot to be holy and blameless. And the reality is, is that while we are in Christ by faith, when we believe on Jesus his person, his work, his finished work credited to our account. What happens when we're found in him is that we become what Martin Luther terms is simul justus et peccator, which means simultaneously justified and sinner. We are right now at the same time in Christ, justified, made right, declared righteous before God and sinful. That's why there's this battle between flesh and spirit raging in between us. But if you're chosen by God, you're chosen to be holy and blameless, which you are because of Christ Jesus, and we are becoming. It's the process of sanctification. That's what many Christians in our world would do well to remember as we are to be growing up into the image of Jesus, growing up into the image and the likeness of Christ Jesus. Paul says, that is why I chose you. I didn't choose you so you could be out here acting crazy in a world that needs me, but all you're doing is leading them to you and how you think. I need a people set apart for my own indiscriminate use for my purposes who are holy and blameless, who aren't stained by the world, but who bear the marks of Christ Jesus, who are living before my face, ultimately for the glory of God. And we're going to get there here in a minute. I'm, I might shout this morning. I'm just going to give you all a warning because the back end of this is really good. But, 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 but we're chosen. We're chosen by grace to be holy. But we're also, second point this morning, we're chosen into God's family. We're chosen into God's family. Look at what Paul says. He says, he's, even as he chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us. That's a different way to say God's sovereign election. God chose us that we would be adopted to himself as sons and daughters, children through Jesus Christ. Um, now there is, I can imagine, a tension in some of you here this morning who all of this talk about divine election and you can't help but to think, how in the world does that make sense? Is God this tyrant who simply chooses whomever he wants, whenever he wants, with no sort of, choice on my end? How does this make sense? If we're talking about God choosing people, does that not necessarily mean on one hand, he's choosing some people for salvation and others he's choosing to send to hell? How do we reconcile such deep theological issues? Let me first say this, and then I want to read a quote from Lynn Kohick, who she has a really beautiful way of saying this. The fact that God picked anybody to be saved is a testament to his grace and mercy. If you were to read what the world was like post the fall, pre the flood, you would understand that none of us deserve salvation. None of us deserve to know God. And yet God in his mercy chose us. Now I want you to live in that tension for a little bit longer. I'm not going to resolve it, but I hope to bring a, a bit of a dull point to it here in a moment. 
I like the way that Lynn Koheg describes this tension in her commentary, a New Covenant commentary on Ephesians. She says, either God is presented as fickle, choosing willy-nilly whomever he wants and also choosing to damn the rest, or God is seen as choosing some because in some way, however hidden it may be, they deserved it more than the others. Of course, we usually don't voice either of these claims in quite such bald language, but nonetheless, their unsettling presence, like ants at a picnic, intrudes inconveniently. She's essentially saying that either we believe in some senses that God has no clue what he's doing or that somehow those of us who are chosen are better than those who aren't. And what I can say to you is that what I think Paul is saying to the Ephesians is that there was at some point in time when you were in your BC life, your before Christ life, you were an enemy of God. Paul says it in Romans chapter five. He says, the mind that is set on the flesh cannot please God. It can't please God. It's hostile to God. You're an enemy to God. When it comes to our BC life, a life that is uh, before the confession that Christ is Lord and belief in his work, we are ISIS to God. We are the Taliban to God. We are the Third Reich to God. Each and every single one of us is an enemy of God. But somehow God chose us to be in Christ that we might be adopted as children of God. That's crazy. The fact that any of us would become children of God is a testament to God's grace. It is amazing to me that even my own children, I don't like that much sometimes. I'm just going to be honest. And yet God can look at me in my totality and somehow choose me to be a son and choose you to be a daughter. Westerners tend to think of the gospel in legal terms like justification only. But the gospel is not only a legal remedy, the gospel is also a relational remedy. Adoption becomes the relational remedy to our relational problem with God. We are far away from God, and yet in Christ, he has brought us near. And in this idea of Roman adoption, where if a man did not have an heir, he could adopt a child or servant in his house to receive all of the full benefits that a firstborn son would receive in the same way, friends. Let this bake your noodle. When we are adopted in the family of God by faith, we receive all of the blessings that Christ Jesus himself receives as living in the house of the Father. Whoa. As a child of God living in the house of God, we receive all of the blessings of living in the Father's house. I remember those words of Bill Cosby speaking to Theo in that show long ago. He says, son, I brought you in the world and I can take you out. But I also remember the words of him telling Theo at one point, Theo, you can always come home. There is a benefit of being in the father's house. There's access to the father. There's the ear of the father. There's the will and the desire of the father. There is the, 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 the brotherhood of Christ Jesus. Do you realize that being in the father's house, that Jesus Christ is your brother? And I don't know about you, I've always wanted a big brother, and in Christ, I get one. The Holy Spirit becomes your sibling. These are not sort of uh, uh, God-to-human relationships, though they are. 
There are also relationships where we are co-heirs with Christ Jesus. That's crazy. So now, in the same way that God will inherit all of the universe presented for and by and through Christ Jesus, it too is now ours. So that as Christ reigns and rules in in all of the earth and across the heavens, we are co-heirs with Christ Jesus. Adoption. That, friends, makes no sense. Do you know who I am? This series is titled Finding Yourself because so many of us speak so negatively to our own selves. And in a world of people trying to figure out who am I, and they're using the Myers-Briggs, and they're using Enneagram, and they're using DISC, and they're using all sorts of social psychological methods to find themselves. And there is a place for all of those things. And I believe in counseling. But friends, if you are made in the image of God, there is only one way you'll be able to find yourself, and it's when you find everything you're not. And then you find the answer to what you're not and what is already given to you in Christ. So I don't care what sort of negative speak you're saying to yourself or what you believe is true about yourself. There's one thing that you can't change, and that is you have been chosen. And you have been adopted. Here's what adoption means. Here's what adoption means. I like this. This is what Martin Manson says. He says adoption is the deliberate action by which a family gives to a person all the privileges of being a member of that family, all of the privileges. And not only do we receive all the privileges, but friends, we also get responsibility. We don't just live in the father's house as freeloaders. We have to live in the father's house in a way that we have the responsibility to be holy, to walk worthy, to live a life of repentance and faith and joy. This past week, William Rainey, wrote on our blog about being adopted. He talked about being a sojourner and a stranger. It was incredibly encouraging to me. And this last sentence particularly struck me. He says that I have been chosen and I have been adopted. Parenthetically, a really big deal for a fatherless child. I have been redeemed and forgiven. I have been lavished with grace to obtain an inheritance. What more could a kid from the barrio want or need? Friends, that is grace, that God would choose us, which is why his sovereign selection isn't about us. It is about his glorious grace. Third and finally this morning, we have been eternally chosen to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, I recognize there are some who are sitting here this morning who are still saying, but Pastor Jason... I, I just got to tell you, man, like, I, I hear you, like, yes, I've been chosen, but, but didn't God, like, kind of look down the line a little bit and see that I was going to choose him and then reflexively before the foundation of the world, then choose me? Didn't God somehow see that I was going to call upon his name at some point and then kind of zoom back into time and, and make the selection before the foundation of the world? Because, like, isn't that how that works? And to which I would say, friends, if we're reading the context of Ephesians Chapter one, there is no I in these verses. It is all a work of God. And it is all a work of God when he'll tell us in another chapter that we were dead in our trespasses. 
And yet the Bible still speaks both of God saving us and a very real responsibility for us to declare the saving work of Christ Jesus. How do these things work? So I want you to picture, right? You're walking and you're walking and, and all of a sudden you come across this massive uh, fork in the road, right? Uh, there were, I came one day in the woods to a fork in the road and I chose the road less traveled, right? So the one on the left is kind of wide and there's a whole bunch of people on it. And the one to the right is kind of dusty and um, it's kind of, uh, it's very narrow. There's not a whole lot of people on it. And you get to this fork and you're like, you know, you're uh, doing your best Emerson. Okay, I'm gonna choose the road less traveled. And in this case, the road pointing off to the left is a road that's wide that leads to destruction. And the, poor, the road that leads to the right is the road, it's the narrow road that leads to salvation. And above the road to your right, this, this goat path, really, you find a door. And on top of this door, you say, hmm, it's asking me to choose. Huh, okay, this is the way of Jesus versus the way of the world. I think I'm going to choose the path of Jesus. You see the road that's wide that leads to destruction. You believe in the person and work of Christ. So you say, I'm going to choose Jesus. So you walk through and you're like, hey, I choose Jesus. Praise be to God. I chose Jesus. And as you turn around to survey where you've come from, you notice that there's also another message on the back side of the door that you couldn't see when you first walked through the door. And the message on the back side of the door is chosen. I like the way that uh, uh, John Stott writes this relationship between the sovereign will of God and the choice of man. He writes it this way. He says, somebody asks indignantly to which we must answer, or excuse me, didn't I choose God? Somebody asks indignantly to which we must answer, yes, indeed you did and freely, but only because in eternity God had first chosen you. There is an interaction between sovereignty and free will. This is where the mystery lies, friends. This is where the mystery actually is. How can God be both divine, sovereignly electing and choosing us? And at the same time, we have a responsibility to choose Jesus. It's like two rails on a railroad track that seem never to diverge. But should you stand in the middle of railroad tracks and look off into the horizon at some point in your own perspective and view, those two rails cross. In the same way, when it comes to this relationship between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, they are both true. Are y'all all right? <laughs> y'all just sitting in a mystery. I appreciate that. They're both true. But we don't like those things to be true because we can't reconcile them. This is what J.I. Packer calls an antinomy. I'm going to take you to the classroom real quick, and then we're about to go to the throne room. An antinomy. What is an antinomy? Packer says it this way, that an antinomy exists when a pair of principles stand side by side, seemingly irreconcilable, yet both undeniable, Furthermore, it is a mystery to, how, to you how they can be squared with one another. Two ideas that seem to be at odds with one another. They're not at odds with one another. They're actually two ideas that are both true. They just don't make sense to us. Let me put it this way. An antinomy, watch this, in this instance, is the friendship. The friendship between two irreconcilable 
yet undeniable realities resolved only within the heart of God. Friends, there are some things that I wonder if you remember your parents, you asking questions when you were young and you would ask a question and your parents would say, well, you would understand when you get a little bit older. Well, well, mommy, how does this work? Well, you'll understand when you get a little bit older. There are certain things the mind of a child is never really ready to learn. There are things that we must delay. There's a pedagogical capacity issue where a child cannot receive the very answer to the questions that they're asking. The place where these two ideas intersect, friends, is inside the heart of God, and we cannot go there. The place where there's resolution to this mystery lies within the heart of God, friends, and we cannot go there. And how dangerous it is for us to desire knowledge not meant for us. Our desires from the garden are still present and powerful. Now, I want you to take a look at something because I'm about to get hot. I love prepositions. I love them. Do Do you know what prepositions are? Prepositions, a preposition for those of you who don't, is anything you can do to a log. You can be on it, you can be in it, you can be around it, you can be underneath it, you can be on top of it. Now, I want you to notice in verses uh, four and six, all of the prepositions and all of the first person or second person or third person personal pronouns. Look at it with me. In in verse three, let's just back up. We've got in Christ. In verse four, we've got in him. And at the very end, before him. In verse five, we've got to himself and then through Jesus Christ. I like that because you can go through a log as well. And then you've got his will, first person, personal pronoun, his glorious grace in the beloved. And then in verse seven, verse two words, in him. Now notice, all of the narrative and all of the story leads us to see that the primary agent in our lives with God is not us. Do you see it? Now there's a conversation to be had about the rest of the Bible and how it fits into this, and we need to have that conversation. But today in Ephesians, friends, here's what you need to know. All of this was done for you through Jesus to the praise of God's glorious grace. When you understand election through the lens of God's activity for his own glory and grace, then you begin to understand your place in it, which is that ultimately God in his kindness chose you. It ain't because you were uh, uh, smarter. It ain't because of the good things you were going to do in your life. No, God chose you to be a part of his family. And as such, he does so so that it is the glory of God's grace that gets praised and exalted, not us. It's why Paul says this is a gift. This is a gift. This is a gift. This is not of ourselves. This is a gift. It is not of ourselves so that no one may boast. If any of us are boasting in our salvation, friends, we may not be saved. If any of us are boasting in all of our good deeds for God, friends, we miss the point. It ain't about us. It's about God. And understanding this should elicit two primary postures. I'm almost finished. That's black preachers speak. I got two more minutes. Um, Understanding this should elicit two primary postures, the first of which is humility. When you understand God's sovereign election, his sovereign choice, it should lead you to humility. 
You cannot square your face and look God in his face and say, you did the right thing by choosing me. If you're following Jesus and reading this Bible like I'm reading it, there's no way you can take credit for what only God deserves the credit for. And if there's any part of our lives before God when we are trying to impress God, God, of course you gave that to me. Look at me. I'm awesome, friend. I would just tell you that you look more like the crypt keeper than you do Cristiano Ronaldo or any other good-looking person in the world. You are not that hot. (laughs) It should lead us to humility. We don't know everything, friends. There are things that are too wonderful for us to know. It's why mystery should lead us to humility. We can't know certain things. And let me just say this, for those who just really want to reconcile all the tensions, Satan believed himself smarter than God. Satan. Friends, there is a humility that theology done rightly should lead us to. Theology doesn't lead us to worship ourselves. Theology leads us to second point, to worship God. There is a, watch this, Eucharistic doxological response to theology. Doxology is worship. Eucharistic is this grace-filled activity wherein when we worship and we receive the grace of God, it leads us to praise. <laughs> Uh, at some point, I'm going to tell you the story. It ain't today because I'm five minutes old. When Boss was born, he was not breathing. We had an unassisted, unplanned home birth. Boss was born in the bathroom of our home in Olive Branch, Mississippi. When Boss came out, he wasn't breathing. When the paramedics and ambulance showed up, he wasn't breathing. They cut the umbilical cord and they took my son to the hospital. They rushed him in the back of a paramedic. I had no idea if he was alive or dead. I got two kids upstairs. Courtney's in the back of an ambulance. She's not answering her phone. I don't know where she is. I don't know how she's doing. I don't know if my son's alive or dead. For two and a half hours, I'd reasoned like David and Abraham alike, that if God, you chose to take my son, in the words of Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I was on my way to Chick-fil-A because that's what you do when you're stressed out. <laughs> With both cars in tow headed to the hospital, I got a text message from Courtney. and She told me he's breathing. His color looks good. He's fine. And I pulled the car over to the side of the road and I had a good little cry. Because never in that moment was God more glorious and beautiful than when I had laid all of the hopes and even my son on the altar of my own desires and and, and basically said, God, if you take him, I can't do nothing about that. His life is in your hands. And for the Lord to give my son back, it elicited a humility and praise because I ain't in control of nothing. And for everyone who ever comes into contact with Boss Cook, they're going to hear the story about how my God travailed and gave life to my son. When anyone meets a Christian who's been chosen by God to be in his family, what they should not be met with is, hey, look at me and how great I am. My theology's awesome. They should be met with, you can meet my dad too. Uh, yes, 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 I'm smart. Yes, we got theology. But I want you to meet my dad That is what it means to live in the house of God. It's for us to introduce people to our dead. Paul isn't giving the Ephesians a systematic theology. He's giving them a Eucharistic doxology, grace-filled praise that should cause them to rejoice. 
and to center the work of God on our behalf. Friends, if hearing of God's election, which is a thoroughly biblical idea of his children into adoption, if hearing of that leads you into a theological hissy fit instead of humility and praise, then you likely aren't doing theology correctly. I don't know if you're here and maybe you've always always been the bridesmaid and never the bride. Friend, I want you to know that God in Christ has chosen you. Maybe you've been here and your battle with infertility has made you feel unloved and unseen and unwanted. If nothing else is true, I want you to know that God in Christ chose you. If you're hearing mom and dad that kicked you out and you never felt alone, you never felt like you belonged and you felt like an orphan and you felt like no one wanted you, I want you to know that God in Christ chose you. How do I know? Because right now you have the opportunity to choose. Right now, friend, you have an opportunity to be a part of the Father's house. Well, Jason, didn't you just say it's God's choice? What if, I, what if I'm elected? What if I'm not elected? And I would say, none of us know. But here's the invitation. The invitation is, dad wants you to come home. Will you come home? Friend, will you come home? Will you stop running? Will you cease your striving? Will you stop running? Will you come home? Jesus is inviting you to choose him today. How do we do that? It's easy. You believe in Jesus by faith. You believe that he is the son of God slain for your sins. And you believe that he died to take away not only the penalty for your sin, but he died that you might be adopted into God's family. You believe that. And then you declare Jesus as Lord. You make him the boss of your life. You say, God, whatever you want from me, that's what you have. That is how we become children in the father's house. Friends, have I told you how excited I am to be in this book? Because when we get this in us, when we get this book in us, it transforms how we see ourselves in each other. But I don't want you to leave today without knowing for, for certain that there is still an opportunity for you to choose. Because the reality is before the foundation of the world, you have been chosen. Let's pray. Each week we come together, we've got an opportunity to respond to God's word by listening to what the spirit of God may be speaking and saying to us. And so I want us to take just a few moments, a few brief moments where we are to hear from the spirit of God, to remind us of what's true and to be obedient, to hear, to listen and to put into practice what he's asking for us this morning. Father, I thank you for your grace, for your mercy, and your love. I thank you that while we were still sinners, Christ, you died for us. And while a good man may give his life for an okay man, no, Jesus, you died for us when we were the worst of the worst, when we were wretched enemies far away from you, but you brought us near. Praise be to your name, Jesus. Glory to your name, God. That grace that immeasurable, unmerited, depthless kindness. It just doesn't make sense. 
But Lord, as long as you have us here on this earth, would we understand it more and more by and by? And would you reveal one degree of glory of your grace over time to another degree, elevating us until the day we see you and perhaps may be able to comprehend with our minds how incredibly beautiful and loving and gracious you have been towards us. So Jesus, I pray that you would bring those who are far from you to faith this morning, that you would allow them to call upon your name knowing that in their confession of faith, it is not out of the blue, but you have been planning for their homecoming for a long, long time. Father, bring your children home. We pray and ask all of these things in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen.